Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, a podcast that celebrates conversation with creative people, people who have something important to offer, and I, along with my listeners, we're willing to listen. Well, today we welcome a true listener. Her name is Diane Hessen, and for four years, she's been in weekly conversation with voters across the country. And what she's learned will give you hope, change the way you think about your fellow countrymen, and actually surprise you. The book is the culmination of her efforts. It's called Our Common Ground, insights from four years of listening to American voters. As we welcome Diane Hessen, let's go on, Mike. Diane, I'm delighted to meet you, and congratulations on what is quite the project. Insights from four years of listening to American voters. Do you have numbers? How many interviews, how many voters you actually ended up speaking with? I do. Well, um, you know, I had this online panel that I recruited, so I basically had 500 voters. And I'd say, Jordan, of those 500, about 300 of them were with me for the entire four, four and a half years that I was doing the work, some others would come in, they had a family crisis or whatever, or I'd just start adding more people, you know, needed to get more millennials, so added more or whatever. So probably about six to 700 people actually participated at some point. And the other number is, if you think about the fact that I was talking to those people on a weekly basis for all that time, I have about 7 million pieces of data. Oh, gosh. That's a lot of hard drive space, a lot of hard drive space. And when did you start the process for what ultimately becomes this book? I know it was an ongoing Globe series. Yeah, I did a shorter project for a few months uh, during 2016. Um, I was engaged in a project um, based on my market research background to help the Clinton campaign try to understand one very specific part of the population, which was undecided voters in swing states. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had a group like that that I talked to, and I'd ask them questions on a weekly basis and interview them, et cetera. And whenever I found something really interesting, I would write a report for the campaign. And it was a fascinating thing. I had not, I had done a lot of work helping brands understand consumers, never did a lot of work with voters, hadn't really, you know, worked in Washington since 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the, uh, when the election of 2016 was over, I was going to go back and take another CEO job. I had been CEO of a couple of companies prior to this project. And while I was interviewing, I basically decided I would write an op-ed for the globe and just say, here's what I've been doing for the past several months. And here's what I've learned. And here's what I think it means. And they published it. And the op-ed went viral. Um, the, the local skinny on it is, I didn't know this, but I guess every four years during a presidential election at the Harvard Kennedy School, there's a moderator that does kind of a postpartum on the election with the two campaign managers. And Jake Tapper of CNN was at the Kennedy School interviewing Robbie Mook, who was the campaign manager for Hillary Clinton, and Kellyanne Conway, who was the campaign manager, obviously, for Donald Trump. And he talked about my op-ed and said, locally, there's this woman named Diane Hessen. She wrote a piece. Here's what she found. And what he quoted was that... um, according to my undecided voters, the moment when they made the 
biggest set of decisions. And when many, many of those voters flipped over to Donald Trump was in the aftermath of when Hillary Clinton actually said that that half of Trump supporters could be put in a basket of deplorables. Mm -hmm. And I explained at that moment that my voters went crazy. So Jake Tapper shares this with the campaign managers and they start snipping about what she said and whether it really mattered. And it just kind of blew up on the internet. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm making more of a difference after the election than before. The whole question of polling, we hear polls constantly and just raw numbers. What you did was much more intimate in a way. And I get the impression that people were more honest, even people who are not as honest with pollsters, because we all know about that situation. What what are your thoughts on that? What are your reflections on how people responded? Yeah, you know, um, we all know that the polls were incredibly off and there are many reasons that, you know, polls are inaccurate. Um, poorly constructed questions, bad weights. I mean, lots of geeky research stuff. But I specifically designed this project to dramatically increase the chances that people would tell me the truth because they don't tell the truth to pollsters. So, for instance, when I decided to do a broader project, which really started in December of 2016, um, before I let people become part of my group, I interviewed each person for a half hour prior to admitting them. One was I wanted to make sure that they were who they really were, but I also wanted to convey to them that there was a real person behind all of these questions who was not going to judge them. Uh, And I was trying to like build a relationship. And so on a weekly basis, when I got to people, they started to feel that I was somebody who they could trust. I would probe, I would ask individuals a few more questions. I would get back to people and tell them, here's what I've heard from all of you. And How fascinating Mm. is this? So I really designed this based on the fact that if I had a relationship with people, they were more likely to open up their lives. And that enabled me to write lots and lots of stories about voters and their real lives and their families and their dreams. And, you know, many times things that they normally wouldn't tell anybody else. Yeah. I have two takeaways and we'll get into it more specifically. But the first one, of course, is Our Common Ground. The title suggests exactly what you discovered, that people are not that different, that most of us can agree to disagree, but then find common ground. And I thought that was great. But the other point is what you're just uh, illuminating is the methodology, the fact that you listened either side, you gave them a chance to relax and be in the moment and be heard. And I hear from a lot of people because I do talk radio on occasion and I hear biggest complaint is they don't feel they're being listened to or they feel that they're uh, ashamed or embarrassed to announce their point of view. So this is a beautiful way to get people to open up and be real, be honest. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, we all heard this from our parents, right? You got two ears and one mouth. So, Hmm. you know, there's a reason for that. We should all do a good job listening to each other. I think at times, especially when it comes to the political arena, because things are so emotional, we forget how valuable it is to just shut up and try to understand where the other person is coming from. And when people feel heard, uh, it's unbelievable what you can learn about them that you just can't learn if all you're doing is talking at them and sending them videos and articles and statistics. Um, Sometimes it's hard. I mean, I will say, um, 
Sometimes it was hard for me to hear what people were saying, but I learned that by kind of responding and saying, well, tell me more about that. You know, where does that mm. come from? What's behind that comment? Uh, it was very, very illuminating for me and uh, definitely kept mm. me sane over that four-year time period. Which is also kind of interesting because in a sense, you're representing media, whether it's a book or the Boston Globe at the time. The mistrust and and sad connection that the public has with what used to be the glorious media that we respected, it's just fallen off the wayside. Have you noticed even since 2016 in the research and the buildup to the publishing of the book, have you noticed a, a diminution in respect and how that impacts how people respond and connect with the media? What, what's your take on where we are there? Yeah. You know, Jordan, I think the media issue is really interesting because on one hand, I can't remember my exact number, but it's close to 90% of Americans believe the media is biased. And they don't just believe it's one side or the other. I mean, if you sit down one evening and you listen to 10 minutes of MSNBC, or you listen to 10 minutes of CNN, or you listen to 10 minutes of Fox, or you go out more on the fringe stations, or even local news, you can hear the inflection in someone's voice, or mm. literally in many circumstances, the sheer content of what they're saying being more like an opinion page than it is mm. like a, you know, like the good old news facts only, et cetera. And Americans hate that. Um, and they'll complain that they don't know where to get their news from. You know, I will say on the other hand, this is how you know, media has an enormous impact on how people think about the issues. You know, one of the, and let me give you an example. I have a chapter on voter fraud. And, um, you know, my data says about half of those who voted for Trump believe he lost the election and about one half believe there was significant fraud um, and that he probably won. And this has been reinforced all by the media, et cetera. But, you know, when I talk to people, those who believe that the election was fraudulent they do not say, well, Donald Trump thought it was fraudulent and I love Donald Trump, therefore I think it's fraudulent. Most people, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, tell me that they are really doing their homework. Mm. They're watching TV. They're reading the articles. They are doing their research. It's just that they're listening to different pundits. Which, they're which, reading different articles. And so the right. media has that impact, even though they know it's biased. It's also where they're getting right. You know, where that, that's shaping a lot of their opinions. That leads me to an overall question that's more general, and that is, how informed is the group that you're dealing with in the last four years, five years? How informed? Now, I say that because you're a journalist as well as a researcher and a market expert. I'm a professional broadcaster. I do my damnedest to be thorough when I research a subject historically and philosophically and so forth. But where, how do these folks in general come across to you in the last several years? Well, here's the thing. I have found that most Americans, Democrat, Republican, independent, don't, they're not political junkies. You know, they don't spend every hmm. single day trying to see what's going on on Capitol Hill. You know, they're not waiting to see what happens with an infrastructure bill. They're not waiting to see what happens, how a January 6th 
you know, congressional commission turns out or whatever. Those are not their issues. They're working. They're trying to raise their family. They're trying to make ends meet. They have a lot. They pay a lot of attention to what's going on in their community. And so if you ask me if they're really informed about political issues, about policy, um, et cetera, I would say, eh, marginally. You know, it's just not their passion. Now, everybody runs to the television set. The first section of my book basically says people are not glued to the TV and listening to this all the time, but there are certain moments when everyone is glued to the TV, you know, in the aftermath of Charlottesville, you know, on a day like January 6th, in the middle of the first presidential debate, et cetera, everyone's glued mm. to the TV. But for the most part, that's not their area of expertise. And yet I think people try to be as responsible as possible. And of course, it depends on your interest area. The, the biggest surprise, or maybe it wouldn't be a surprise to you, is that one area where Americans just don't have a lot of interest is foreign policy. Mm. So, you know, when I ask people about the issues they care about the most, foreign policy is not even in the top 10 for Americans. You know, they find it boring. They're generally focused on their own lives in their own towns. And there, most people are not up to speed on the basics. I mean, if you ask them about NATO, they don't know a lot about NATO, how it was formed, what it does, who's a member. Um, what they do know is that most of the NATO members weren't paying their full complement of dues and that Trump got them to pay it. But, you know, they yeah. wouldn't pass a test well, on the basics of NATO. It's, so it's it, an, it varies by issue. Obviously, the, the economy stupid is the famous expression from the 90s, but it, it still yeah. matters. You know, do I have a job? Or is inflation cutting into the budget that my family can, can live on? All those bread and butter issues make sense. Let's talk about some of the issues because you really go across the board uh, from gun control, which is some very interesting commentary on that, in the environment and you know climate change. All of the big issues you were able to delve into you know what people are thinking about. You mentioned the word surprise. So let's talk about some of the surprises. And I think they're good surprises. I'm very thrilled to know that people have more common ground than than not. But what are some of the things yeah. that highlight highlight the surprise? Yeah, you know, I mean, in general, when it comes to policy, there is much more common ground than we realize mm. in the U.S. So mm -hmm. if you ask voters, for instance, about um, immigration, you can get 80 percent of Americans to be willing to compromise on a particular solution. So, for instance, you can get 80 percent of our country to agree on an immigration bill that gives dreamers a path to citizenship, builds a physical wall in some parts of the border, you know, increases humanitarian aid for people, adds more technology at the borders and so mm. on. Mm. And, you know, if I showed it to you, it might not be an ideal bill, but people would be fine with it. Um, but, you know, the, the bills don't pass. And one of the reasons is that many of our elected leaders are just politically better off with no resolution. So it's easier in, in the case of immigration, it's easier if you're a Republican and you scream and yell that immigrants are pouring into our country and that you will stop them, or that if you're a Democrat, you make the case for immigration and compassion and say you'll make sure that no child is ever put in a cage again and so on. So the act of resolving the issues takes talking points away. Mm. You know, there's common ground on gun control. I had huge numbers of people, you know, lifetime members of the NRA, grew up with guns, went to the driving range, you know, once a week, et cetera, 
who talk to me passionately about the need for regulation and hmm. the need for licensing right. and um, you know the, how important it is to make sure that no one on the terrorist watch list actually is allowed to own a gun and you know all these trade show loopholes and everything. But you know we perceive we agree on nothing because what we listen to are the extremes. So on gun control, for instance, we don't realize that there's a lot of common ground. What we think is that one side wants to take away all of our guns, you know, and the other side wants to own, you know, own 300 guns per person and mm. walk around town, mm. you know, with their guns in their holster, mm. ready to shoot the first person that kind of crosses them. And, and neither of those are true, but we perceive that. And so we can't have the conversation about where we have things in common. Diane, there is uh, a vested interest, I think, and you pointed it out um, in the political sphere to just keep fighting and, and getting the newsprint. There's also, a, I think, a political and monetary vested interest in certain elements of media where it's all about confrontation. But the people you're talking to are looking for Hey, we're trying to just get by here. Let's finish this. Let's figure out the <laughs> let's figure out the infrastructure bill, come to a compromise, kind of like we did in the old days. We talked about the media and the public's impact and interest in that, but also the the political uh, machinery. And I'm of the belief that fewer people are going to be identifying as Democrats or Republicans going forward because most people don't go to the extreme side. I mean, I'm a guy in the middle like so many others. I, I don't want to be associated with an extreme one way or the other. What's your take on the political parties, the future of them, and the growth of the independent movement? You know, it's interesting that you asked that question because um, I was just double checking my numbers yesterday. But, you know, people always say to me, did you have any Trump voters from 2016 who voted for Biden? Or did you have any Clinton voters from 2016 who ended up voting um, for Trump in 2020. And the interesting thing is that there weren't a lot of shifts that way, but a lot of people who were Democrats now identify as independents. And a lot of people who were Republicans now identify with independents. I think some of that, I don't think that necessarily means that they've become more moderate, but there's an impatience with and disappointment in their political parties. And I think they don't necessarily, again, want to identify with the radical, the more radical elements of their party. So they say, you know what, I'm going to make my decision based on the most qualified candidate. Um, you know, does that mean that it's the rise of a third party? You know, I'm not an expert on this, but from what I understand, it is really, really expensive to build a political party and the machinery and the databases and all of the knowledge that you need. But um, there is, this was surprising to me, but there are just a lot of people in the, there are mm -hmm. more people in my sample, and I believe in the United States who identify as independents than identify with either party. There are sections in the book, uh, one of them is part five, turmoil in our political parties. And I know that some uh, exist for the turmoil and get well-known and, and have national recognition and their ambitions are in obvious display, but I think it's hurting the parties overall and, and what they're standing for. That's just an opinion. The first page, if you will, of your book is called The State of Our Disunion. It, it, sometimes I think it's a self-proclaimed prophecy that we, we talk about ourselves being in, incapable of getting along and just so divided. Then I think about 1860, and that was more divided. <laughs> but um, what are people, are people hopeful, the people in your surveys, 
despite all the challenges with the media and the political machinery, are they hopeful? Do they have stock and faith in old-fashioned American values of get together and you know roll up your sleeves and get things done? What, what's the mm-hmm. sense overall? You know, overall, I would say that the people who I spoke with are, I think they're pretty upset. I think they're, I, I think people are burnt out in general. They're tired. They've been living through COVID. They're sick of all the screaming and yelling. Uh, they're, people are telling me that they're not listening to the news anymore. They might have mm-hmm. the TV on, they mute it. Um, I, I think they're, people are pretty despondent about the state of things. I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is I was trying to write a book of hope. I mean, I do think that, you know, when I say our common ground, I don't think this is not a Pollyanna thing. I don't think this means that we can all just sit in a room and sing Kumbaya and agree with each other. But I think that there is significant opportunity to turn down the heat and to begin to take steps to just understand each other. And, And I think it does start with listening I think it also starts with knowing that if you do believe that you're hearing from biased sources, know that when you hear a story about somebody who's crazy, not all people in that party are like them. If you're Mm -hmm. a Republican who's listening to this and you hear somebody that you think is a radical socialist who you think wants to give everything away, you know, for free and take away all your guns and dismantle the police. You can't believe that that is the entire Democratic Party, and that's got to give you comfort. And in the same way, you know, if you ask most Republicans about the Democratic Party, they'll say, oh, you know, I mean, actually, uh, let me other way around. If you ask most Democrats about Trump supporters, they'll say, oh, you know, there are a bunch of hypocritical, uneducated deplorables who sleep with their guns and refuse to wear masks and deny that climate change is happening and never met a black person they like. And that is also yeah, true. It's, we need to keep reminding ourselves that, yeah. you know, those crazy people that we see are not the party, are not the America um, that we ought to be thinking about you right. know, in, in the real world. And, and the old expression, if it bleeds, it leads, still is the watchword in terms of what gets attention. Mm-hmm. And particularly with social media, we all know that. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I... I take again, and this goes back to our first question, is the fact that you are a human being with a voice listening. Maybe you were seeing them on screens, whatever, but listening, physically listening. You're not just receiving a text or you're not receiving a written response. That has to be a factor in in the honesty and the connection that you formed. Too many people, as I said, feel that they're not being listened to. I think the, the greatest thing that can happen going forward is more people getting back to basics, uh, picking up the phone and actually using it as a phone. <laughs> what are your <laughs> thoughts on if we can only get so far with social yeah. media and then start to be real again? Well, look, I think it starts with the people we care about the most. I, I think for a while we've been saying, well, I have these friends that are different from me, so we just don't talk politics. Or I have family who believe different from I, from me. And we shouldn't talk politics. And I think we got to stop with the not talking, um, which is a really, really hard thing mm. to do. But going to somebody who you really care about and saying, okay, I'm going to try just listening to what you have to say about these particular issues. And 
you know, literally as the person talks saying, tell me more about what you mean. Tell me more about what you mean. I will tell you, it's hard to do, but it is frequently really, really illuminating. And when you do that, because you're right, Jordan, I mean, most people don't feel understood. They don't feel heard. They don't feel heard by their families. They don't feel heard by their bosses. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people used to say to me, Diane, you're the only person who listens to me. You're the only person who listens to me. And um, I think that when you do that, the other person is way more willing to kind of listen to your point of view also. Yeah, I, I believe that uh, the world will stop spinning on its axis when someone on a panel <laughs> on Fox or MSNBC or CNN says, you know, I'd list, listen to this argument and I think I agree with you. That's not going to happen anytime soon, but when it does, all clocks everywhere will stop. Right. <laughs> It'll exactly. be a watershed moment. Yeah. I mean, let me go back to the voter fraud example, because this is the this is the one that just drives everybody crazy. So you have all these people who believe that the election was fraudulent. So if you believe that Biden is a legitimate president, which, by the way, I do. I do as so well. People I do know as well. my politics. What do we do when confronted with somebody who says the election was fraudulent? We we give them the critical statistic, 60 out of 61. And we say, how can you believe the election was fraudulent? 60 out of 61 fraud cases were thrown out by the judges. And we give them that statistic and we send them articles and we talk and educate because we're so smart. I will tell you that every one of those 35 million Americans who believe the election was fraudulent have already heard 60 out of 61 and it didn't change their mind. Uh, so in order to really understand yeah. where that's coming from, you have to say, I really want to understand where that comes from. What's going on? Where did you hear about it? What did you read? Who told you this, et cetera? And it's fascinating. So for instance, a very significant chunk of people who believe the election was fraudulent believe that there was a problem with one narrow element of elections in particular, which is mail-in ballots. Mm -hmm. They believe that with mail-in ballots, especially if you don't have to prove that you're the name, you're the person who filled it out, that there is enormous potential for fraud. And when you get into it, it's a totally different conversation to really understand what people think about mail-in ballots than to go broad, you know, and start talking about every possible article that you've ever read that tells people that they're wrong. So I think the more that you can dig in and really see what's troubling people, you know, the better off you are. And the one additional caveat before we wrap up is the fact that social media platforms are being either pressured or they're doing it on their own. They are canceling people and basically uh, shutting down certain information. Now, I'm not opposed to shutting down information that is patently false and dangerous to the public health, but I think that's a slippery slope. We have to be very careful. And I think that's another reason why people are concerned. And, and you don't want to see them get turned off and just dig a hole. That's not the, the answer either. But I think your book does a lot to illustrate that uh, there are some very sensible Americans, most of our fellow citizens, and uh, we, we have the right to an opinion, and, uh, but we also have the right to, the obligation to hear others. So. Well, I'm, I tried to tell a lot of stories that at least give the reader pause and, you know, to give some help. So rather than me saying you should just listen to say to people, OK, here's what you say and how you set up a conversation. 
et cetera. But yes, and I think we will get smarter about this over time. I mean, we'll we'll learn new ways and we'll have new technologies for helping us understand the truth. But right now it's messy. It's full of nuance, um, but it, it's definitely not black and white. And it, this whole project has made me a lot more optimistic about what's possible. Same here. It's called Our Common Ground Insights from four years of listening to American voters. Diane Hessen, you put in the, the time and the effort. I think that's uh, a real star in your in your column and it really shows and I really appreciate you joining us to share some of this with us today. Thank you, Jordan. My pleasure. Once again, Our Common Ground, insights from four years of listening to American voters. It's a brand new book by Diane Hessen, H-E-S-S-A-N. I highly recommend it. And I greatly appreciate you listening to the podcast. We've got more and more subscribers and downloaders every single week, now with listeners in over 95 countries. For more on the podcast and all the other projects we're involved in, including the book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, my work at WBZ, voiceover, acting, and much more, visit jordanrich.com. That's jordanrich.com. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and the gang at Chart Productions in Boston, where the podcast is produced, to friends and family, I hold you so dear, and again, to you for listening. Appreciate it very much. As always, this is Jordan saying, be well so you can do good. Take care.